Okay, so um, okay, so so Hadrian's recommended a book. Um, it's called The Jakarta Method: Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program That Shaped Our World. Um, and I was like really intrigued, kind of by the the short little blurb I saw, and I decided to like read it. And Hadrian and I are going to have a little little discussion about what this what this book is about. Yeah, well, I, I guess before I summarize it, I maybe wanted to say uh, the the sort of blurb that kind of enticed you to read it. I I essentially had the same reaction. I mean, you know, the sort of title already is it it just based on that, it's sort of like, oh, okay, what am I getting into reading this? I mean, you know, it's it's a, a book with mass murder in the title is not something that you expect to be light reading. That being said, I, I, I want to say this is an incredibly readable book. Um, it's like very accessible. Uh, it's probably like one of the clearer sort of history books I've tried to read. And I, you know, I found that when I started, it's, it's hard to put down. I think that was probably your experience as well. Yeah, I had a really similar experience. Um, and it was partly due to the structure the, the author kind of took, right? Like, you know, uh, there's, there's like sections that are kind of like dry facts, like, and then, you know, Eisenhower did blank and Tricky Dick said X and whatever. But they do this kind of remarkable thing where they, they find people who live through this thing and they kind of slowly like build them into the story. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the sort of structure of the book in terms of how it's sort of interweaving these personal narratives. I mean, you know, these are people who who lived through these events, who opposed or supported them and, you know, were had, had their lives sort of profoundly shaped and affected by it. Um, and so I, I think that aspect is, is it makes it very easy to relate to, especially if you are, uh, you know, I think like you and I, you know, Americans. And so may, maybe before I uh, summarize this, I, I just want to say that, you know, if I, I'm not clear really who will be the audience listening to this eventually, but especially if you are sort of an American listener, I would strongly recommend you read this because it's it's a part of this sort of history of, of our country, which is essentially never discussed. And, uh, and, and, and it's sort of hard to talk to, partly because it's just so, so, much of it's so horrific and, and until recently, I mean, literally secret. You know, it's, much of this book is based on kind of recently declassified files. I, I, I heard a, a sort of different interview the author gave and he, he mentioned, you know, th this book couldn't have been written a decade ago. Let's set the stage a little bit. Yeah, so so if, if I had to sort of describe this book, I would say that you could view it for, uh, from one point of view as kind of a history of the Cold War, but from the perspective of the Third World. And so if, if you've heard this phrase, you know, the, the Third World sort of has a negative connotation. It's typically used uh, to be synonymous with mean like somehow like backwards or undeveloped or, you know, poverty stricken. And... Um, you know, I, I, ironically, this is uh, th this is um, more just sort of because of you know various kind of racist connotations of people who have told the history of the Cold War uh, and the Third World in the decades that have passed. But you know, initially, the the sort of Third World movement was thought of as you know this very kind of optimistic, forward-thinking step. Like a quick aside, can you kind of define? like the first world, the second world, and the third world, kind of in the context of the book? Yeah, absolutely. So the, so the first world is what we typically think of as sort of, uh, 
you know, the U.S., Western Europe, the U.K., the sort of, uh, you could say, like, capitalist countries post-World War II. Uh, but in particular, in the sort of relevant things, they're all so all either currently colonizing or formerly colonial, uh, you know, nations. So in the U.S., that's, um, that's something that's kind of known to, uh, like, all Americans. We know that we were, you know, sort of a, a settler society, but we don't really think of ourselves often as kind of an empire in that sense, even though we, we have had colonies, we still have them, we sort of exert our influence all over the world. I, you know, I've, uh, did ask, ask any Puerto Rican you meet whether the U.S. has colonies, and I mean, they'd, they'd point out, you know, the, sort of their family members. Um, so, you know, that's, that's sort of the first world coming out of World War II. The second world, roughly, is, you could say, the, the USSR, you know, sort of based in Moscow, all of the countries that were, uh, you could say, sort of liberated by the Red Army uh, from the Nazis after World War II. So, you know, these various Soviet satellite states, um, as well as uh, kind of communist countries that are developing in the post-war period. So, you know, some, uh, you, you know, Mao's China, say. And then the third world is, you could say, everything else, or you could say where the vast majority of the planet lives. And this is, you know, uh, the, the formerly colonized or currently colonized at the time uh, countries of uh, Africa, Asia, South, South, Southern and Central America. Um, and so sort of the, the Third World Movement was comprised of these nations that, um, you know, were, were starting to move towards their independence and, you know, looked to either the First or Second World for what kind of nations they could develop as when they became sort of independent self-determining states. Um, and so in particular, you know, since this is uh, a history of the Cold War from that point of view, uh, something that's very relevant is what were the alliances of these various third world countries? And so, you know, some were, you know, more closely allied with communists in the kind of American imagination, certainly, you know, Vietnam. We, we view the war in Vietnam in at least in part, a war against communism. Certainly, you know, uh, any of the uh, territories that uh, Mao took over. Um, but uh, you also had a large number of kind of non-aligned states. And chief among them is Indonesia, which is where the majority of what the events described in the book take place. Yeah. And, so, uh, and like, can you, can you just like speak a little bit about like kind of the Indonesian history they kind of talk about in the book? Uh, yeah, I, I can try and summarize it. But so uh, the first thing that's sort of important to note is that Indonesia is a is an enormous country. I mean, it's it, it's the fourth largest populous uh, country in the world. Um, and this was sort of true at the time of these events as well. Uh, it's incredibly rich in resources. Um, I mean, you know, the w one thing the book mentions is that the world's largest gold mine currently is uh, in sort of the, uh, some of the western islands of, you know, this collection of states. Um, and uh, Indonesia itself, you know, sort of in this post-colonial political movement uh, was really kind of a, a north star for the, the third world movement. So the, the, the sort of newly elected president, President Sukarno, was someone who um, was, you know, incredibly charismatic, uh, kind of uh, helped set the stage for 
the sort of government that Indonesia would set. So he had kind of a political philosophy, which was meant to be this sort of fusion of kind of Islam and Marxism, which, you know, sounds a bit funny, but they, they talk a bit about in the book. And uh, essentially was, was trying to set the stage for how various post-colonial nations could try and, um, you know, see how they could develop. So the one of the sort of major events described in the book uh, was the 1955 Bandung Conference, which is this sort of Afro-Asian conference that was this, uh, you know, massive international collaboration of, you know, these, you know, currently colonized or post-colonial states. Um, and, you know, Sukarno gives a, a, a massive address, which is meant to be sort of, you know, essentially announcing this organization. But so, yeah, you know, uh, Richard Wright is, uh, you know, is, is both an author and a journalist at the time, um, but also is a black man, you know, born during the era of Jim Crow and growing up in America. He's very skeptical of both, you know, the sort of U.S.'s intentions in trying to shape the world post-World War II and, you know, skeptical of the U.S. in general, but also, you know, is skeptical of the Third World Movement. He just thinks like, yeah, okay, it'd be nice if maybe, you know, all these, you know, countries formerly under the thumb of empire uh, are able to kind of set their own destiny, but, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. But he goes to the, he goes to the Bandung conference as a, as a reporter and, uh, you know, is just sort of swept away by it. I mean, you know, I think this, to some degree, this is kind of a, an example of the, the sort of charisma and vision Sukarno had, but, you know, all the people there, you know, at the time really believed a better world was possible. And, you know, Wright was definitely among them. I mean, you know, he, you know, reading his writings about it, it's, it's easy to get teary-eyed. Uh, but, you know, meanwhile, you have, you know, various, uh, various folks in Washington sort of sweating bullets because, you know, they, uh, on the one hand, would like to continue the sort of neo-colonial uh, program they've set up, uh, you know, so they, they don't want all these uh, countries getting any ideas, but at the same time, they're also seeing this, you know, rising power in which the Communist Party doesn't have sort of a bad name. And so that's sort of really worrying for them. And they're, they're looking suspiciously at Sukarno, even as they're trying to support him. The, the, the sort of interesting thing about this, though, is that, and, and I think relevant for the book, is at the time, Indonesia really did view itself as being sort of non-aligned. I mean, the, the Indonesian Communist Party existed. They were sort of, you could view them as like a, um, a minority party in the government. I mean, they, they didn't have a lot of political power, but they were like a substantial chunk, you know, in the sort of parliamentary government they had. And, uh, and that was something that was really, you could say, terrifying to a lot of the U.S. I mean, to, to view this, you know, independent nation where communism seemed to be sort of developing. Um, in spite of the fact that, <laughs> you know, they were, they were not exactly taking marching orders from Moscow, you know, Sukarno, he, he sought support from both the first and second world, but he wasn't, you know, engaging in, you know, military actions. He wasn't, you know, uh, sort of imposing tariffs or privileging trade with either, you know, the U.S. or the USSR. Um, but, you know, the, the, that reality was, you know, less important to the, the early CIA, one could say. Yeah. Um, and I mean, they, they kind of spend a bit of time also kind of uh, un unwrapping sort of like CIA um, 
like CIA history, which I had kind of had a sense from like, yeah, it came out of the OSS and blah, blah. But they actually did, I think, one or two full chapters just talking about like, this is where the CIA came from. And these are like kind of the main players. Um, and just like they did for, you know, kind of the Indonesian sort of characters, like in sort of the narrative style, they said like, here's two interesting uh, folks from from the CIA and are kind of important actors in this story. Um, you know, the CIA kind of allowed certain countries um, some amount of autonomy in terms of de- defining their allegiance you know, between, you know, in the Cold War. Um, but I think kind of after they had some successes toppling folks that started to lean more um, you know, communisty, right? That kind of that kind of change. I think with the U.S. at least, it was fairly scattershot in terms of kind of what you could say what reform was allowed. So, like for example, um, you you on the one hand in the the post-war era, the U.S. is uh, you know it's it's occupying Japan and trying to rebuild uh, Japan after after we sort of crush their empire. So, in particular, we're we're able to do, you know, kind of vaguely socialist things. We allow them to do that. So there's like rant, there's land reform, you know, sort of a lot of the large, uh, you could say, holdovers from the previous sort of feudal landlords. Some of those farms get broken up. Uh, you know, popular things. People people like to have access to land, but you can point to countries whose development were were not completely sort of dictating like Guatemala. And so, you know, their, their president, sort of Jacopo Arbenz, he is trying to do some of those same things that, uh, you know, um, MacArthur is running in Japan. Um, but, you know, this is, this is cause for panic because uh, I, I guess it's, it's communist when they do it, perhaps. And so, you know, a, as you say, there's, a, there's at the time a, a really successful sort of violent coup, kind of one of the, one of the more obvious ones. I, I think you were sort of getting at this previously, but um, if you if you do these really obvious kind of uh, you could call them like bull in a china shop type regime changes, uh, that the effects don't seem to last long, right? So if you're trying to depose our bends and you're you're you know dropping thousands of pounds of explosives on the presidential palace and you know uh, a, a, a boy who was you know very young at the time is interviewed in the book and he you know, keenly remembers shitting himself when the bombing occurs, um, you know, to little surprise, perhaps, those kinds of regime changes don't tend to be very stable. Guatemala, you know, sort of rocks back violently back and forth. Um, so, you know, I think at some point, you know, sort of Washington realizes that you, you, you can't be too overt. It helps to be covert. You know, President Sukarno, this sort of, you know, kind of influential, charismatic leader of Indonesia, He's, uh, he's already sort of survived, you know, one, <laughs> one coup attempt, right? You know, he's, he's coming out here like 50 Cent, you know, many men wish death. You know, the, the, the CIA had tried to topple his country previously in 1958. And, and I think that's, that's also sort of relevant to the story as to why, why they needed to get more creative is that in, in 1958, there was... Um, another one of these kind of ham-handed uh, attacks. And so, so what happens is there's sort of a, there's a bombing campaign that occurs uh, in Java, which is one of the, I think is, is the largest island in Indonesia, which is you know, a country of roughly 17,000 different islands. There's Dutch support um, for this bombing campaign, but um, it, 
it goes wrong in sort of a very obvious way because uh, one of the planes that gets shot down uh, is being piloted by an American, this guy Alan Pope, who uh, is is also a, a CIA member and you know is is carrying documents on him. You know has you know the equivalents of his driver's license and. You know, I guess his his punch card at the CIA cafeteria or something. I mean, maybe after this event, the the CIA asked their agents to not, you know, carry, you know, little signs that say, yes, I'm a I'm a foreign agent. But the fact that this guy was, you know, piloting a plane with bombs from a country that was, you know, simultaneously pretending to support yours, you know, doesn't look good. It's, you know, this to some degree was a covert operation in the sense of, the, uh, the U.S. ambassador at the time uh, was to Indonesia was completely unaware of it. You know, he, Sukarno knew that Washington was getting spooked by what he was doing. And so, you know, he he goes to uh, the ambassador and says, you know, like, are, are, are things fine? And he's like, yeah, you know, Washington loves you. I don't know what you're talking about. And then, you know, the CIA pilot gets shot down and, you know, the ambassador's kind of got egg on his face. So so to some degree, this this sort of it, it, it kind of empowers Sukarno because he he knows that uh, he knows that he has some confidence that he can push back on the U.S. a little bit, and it it makes it harder to paint him as you know just some you know just some some dumb Asian conspiracy theorist, which uh, you know U.S. Uh, media outlets are happy to do for you know all the other leaders of countries that were you know trying to depose at the time. Yeah, I mean, and, and they came up with some other kind of ways to try and kind of smear him, right? Like he he was really gaining in popularity, and they had some some like really creative uh, filmmaking that they they were kind of trying to enroll to to sort of smear him. I mean, so you know, Sukarno, I guess you know, is among all the other things also a bit a bit of a horn dog. So uh, you know, the U.S. thought, well, you know, our populace are you know they're all you know weird Puritans who have all kinds of sexual hangups. Surely. You know, Sukarno's sexual ex- escapades will come as a huge surprise, and uh, you know, really shock them. So, yeah, they, I mean, the CIA paid Bing Crosby to try and make uh, a porno, uh, <laughs> like fake sex tape, by hiring uh, a Hispanic man to imitate him. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, it's the kind of ludicrous stuff you usually hear about when when we discuss the Third War. You know, like exploding cigars being sent to Castro. Uh, you know, in this case, the movie never saw the light of day, partly because, well, I guess, you know, Indonesians didn't seem to mind this. What One sort of a bit surprising fact the book mentions is that kind of even the various factions within the Indonesian Communist Party, of which there were many, one which was the, the women's movement, the Gurwani, uh, one of their kind of major policy platforms was an end to polygamy, which was legal at the time. But they, they kind of made a public and embarrassing exception for Sukarno, because uh, they're like, well, you know, okay, he's, he's the president. We're, we're not going to pretend that, you know, this isn't annoying, but it's not our biggest worry. <laughs> what the CIA realizes their sort of real supporters are is the, the military. And and this will turn out to be what it seems like a, a, a key part of, you know, what, what ends up becoming the Jakarta method. But it's sort of trying to develop factions within the military, which are sort of can be uh, relied on to be very rabid anti-communists. It was a, a kind of a very deliberate, you could say, grooming. I mean, you you had uh, 
there, there were sort of two, you could say, categories of Indonesians during this period of time who were uh, living abroad in the U.S. You had kind of students and you had soldiers. And the students were learning about, um, you know, the, the, the wonders of the free market and the soldiers were learning about the evils of communism. Um, so one of the things I, I kind of noticed in the book that I like thought was sort of prescient right now is, you know, the, the method also kind of needed some kind of a flashpoint, right? In order to, you know, they, yeah. they've, they've established this, this general as an asset and they're going to, you know, instate him. They need some way to basically make it look like he's the hero. So they come up with this, this kind of system um, and they deploy this in a couple of places where they basically fake a communist attack. Right. Um, I think in the case of, of Indonesia, they like they executed, I think, six um, members of the Indonesian government and they built, just blamed on the communists. Like, yep, this was the PKI. They just like like just said that. So, you know, under the pretenses of, you know, oh, these communists have killed these these government officials, which, you know, like basically the CIA and Sutarno's men actually did. Um, they said, OK, Sutarno needs to leap into action and save and save us all from the communists because Indonesia was in this place where it was not really, you know, perfectly aligned with, with Moscow or, or the U.S. And so they made it look like Moscow was making moves uh, within Indonesia and within Jakarta and had Suharto kind of take, uh, like, take control of the country. Um, and I think that's like probably the most, you know, insidious part of this thing, right? It's that, that, that sort of fake flag attack. I, I, I think, you know, people who are like conspiratorial about false flag attacks, like, they kind of have a reason to, right? Like we got really good at doing this in a lot of the world. And so when people say, you know, certain things in American society is a false flag, like they, they have a reason to be a little paranoid, even if some of the things they think are false flags are, are really heinous and, and kind of incorrect, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that that to me is sort of always kind of the, the funniest thing about learning some of these formerly secret sort of uh, atrocious U.S. foreign policy actions is that um, the, the, the truth of the matter is something that like only, you know, that, that a conspiracy theorist would come up with. And so to, to some degree, like just knowing these things, it's, it's disorienting. You know, you discredit and, you know, make your, your opponents look extremely violent so that you can respond with more violence, right? And just push the whole thing down then you don't necessarily look like the oppressor, you look like a defender. Well, yeah, and I, I think one aspect of that that is really, um, I think a really crucial part of this sort of strategy of regime change is that you, you could almost view it as like an outsourcing of violence. So, so I mean, I think we, we, we haven't gotten to this part of the, the history yet, but, you know, it's sort of a relevant thing to say right now, which is um, when... You know, when, when the mass killings happened, and they did, they were being organized and orchestrated by the Indonesian military with logistical support from the U.S., but a huge numbers of the killings were happening, were, were being perpetrated by other civilians, right? And, and so, you know, some, some interviews the, the author, Vincent Bevins, has uh, given, he sort of highlights this book can, at least in part, as complementary to um, a documentary of a few years ago called uh, The Act of Killing, which is uh, 
a, a difficult watch. I mean, I, I would say it's much harder to watch than it is to read this book because, you know, words are not visuals. But in particular, that the book talks about a, you know, an individual who, who participated in these mass killings. And there's, there's a section of the book sort of detailing this where the military got lists of, you know, either members of the Communist Party or alleged communists or their, or their wives or children or husbands or, you know, grandparents and said, okay, you know, here are the people that get killed. And then the military would, you know, get some individuals and machetes and the, and the people on their lists and, you know, say to one set of civilians, you know, here's a machete or a gun, kill them or we'll kill you. And, you know, and, and these people were disappeared. You know, they're, you know, the something like, you know, estimates of anywhere from half a million up to three million people weren't weren't just killed as part of this, but they they were, you know, disappeared. They they stopped existing, and I think that was sort of the the psychological terror for a lot of people uh, put through this. Is you know, it's not just that your family member may have been killed; they might not have been. You know, they could be in a prison or a work camp. Um, and 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 that's really, I think, what a, a crucial part of the Jakarta method was was that it was it was this international movement of sort of anti-communist terror. You had strategies and propaganda and techniques being sort of shared and implemented by all these different countries, whether it's Indonesia or Brazil or Guatemala, Nicaragua. You know, um, I mean, you know, Operation Condor in uh, Central and South America was sort of drawing its inspiration from these programs. In some cases, the word Jakarta, you know, the sort of the capital of this formerly forward-thinking and optimistic third-world country became synonymous with this terror. When, when you know, uh, Chileans were being threatened um, in, uh, as part of this sort of rising action, you know, you, you, you had graffiti being, you know, uh, put on the walls, you know, essentially saying Jakarta is coming. Yeah. Um, how should we wrap this up? Um, I mean, cause I, I feel like I don't want to give away kind of the, the whole kind of story and I don't really want to like dive into all the stuff in Brazil yet. Um, well, I, I think maybe one thing I'd suggest is if people are sort of curious about this and they, they would like to give the book a try, um, may, I don't know how you're going to make this sort of podcast available, but, uh, but I'd say maybe you should definitely include a link to that, that sort of excerpt, I think from the New York review of books. Because, um, I mean, I, I think it's it's sort of upsetting. Like reading some of it, it's it is sort of brutal. I I'd maybe add the the you know content warning. It's probably that's that's maybe as upsetting as the book gets explicitly. I'd say maybe the content itself is sort of abstractly very upsetting. But um, I think also that it's it's a great sort of sample of it. And you know, I'd, I'd certainly encourage people to get a copy of this. Cool. That's, um, I feel like that's a great place for us to end then. Um, dude, thank you so much for doing this. This is amazing. Like, I, I cannot wait to do this again with, like, all my friends. Yeah, well, you know, maybe uh, you, you, can, you can pick the next book in that case, and we'll, you know, we'll read that one. Cool. All right. Cool. Well, well thank, thanks, Kira. Dude, thanks thank for, you. This you know, was awesome. This podcast. I, uh, <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this amazing book and recommending this book. And, uh, you know, if you're listening, folks, and you enjoyed our conversation, Send us uh, a little note with any comments or feedback you might have or topics you'd like to cover. And uh, go read this book.
Yeah, that's it. We, we, we welcome your criticism. We or, do. You know, hatred. Yeah. However you choose to respond to this podcast. Wow. All right. Cool. Thanks, dude. I really appreciate talking to you. Bye, Kieran. See you, dude.